This was one of the most useful podcasts that I've ever done. It's with Andrew Huberman, the neuroscientist. Uh, we did this a while ago, but it 100% still applies now, which is basically all about the neurochemicals in your brain and how to maximize them during the different times of day so you have an optimal brain day from everything from performance, intelligence, pleasure, sleep, relaxation, all the things you need to know for brain health with the chemicals in your brain. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. So once again, Professor Andrew Huberman, uh, professor of neuroscience at Stanford, we had him on to talk about specific neuroscience, neurobiological ways of dealing with anxiety, stress, uh, the brain in, you know, during this lockdown and quarantine. But I got so curious about what are all the neurochemicals? Like you keep hearing about dopamine, serotonin, oxytocin, and their relationship to cortisol and other stress chemicals. How can I, I selfishly asked Andrew back on because I want to optimize in almost uh, like a superhero kind of fashion. I want to optimize my brain to be as happy as possible, as energetic as possible, as smart as possible. And so I want to know what practices I could put in place to basically boost my happy chemicals if such a thing is possible. So Professor Andrew Huberman, welcome back. Thanks for having me. Great to be here again. Yeah, thanks for coming on. I, I, you know, I've been using, you know, the stuff you suggested the last time. Things like um, inhaling twice and then the deep exhale, or getting at least some, a few minutes of panoramic vision per day, or you know, making sure my metabolic uh, system is is, you know, aligned with the first sunlight. I've been going out in the morning just to see the sunlight for a few minutes having kind of small goals to achieve during the day. So that's, I guess, good for the dopamine or serotonin, one of them. Mm -hmm. uh, all the stuff you suggested I've been, I've been using and it's been great. I feel like in general, and then of course, I've been kind of limiting as much as I can and it's hard, it's social media. So that helps too. Yeah, great. Um, great to hear you're doing those practices. You know, those practices, even though they seem small and they none of them take very long, um, they sum to really raise the baseline of everything that you're doing. They improve your sleep, they improve your mood, they improve your metabolism, they improve everything because they really are the, the, the anchor and the foundation. So I think of it as like, if you're like a boat, it's, you really can't get out to sea if, uh, you know, if you're stuck in the sand. These are the things that kind of bring the tide in far enough so you can really push off. And then maybe today, I, it sounds like where we might be headed is, um, you know, once you're out to sea, what are the things that you can do to really optimize that journey? And um, and I use this analogy because if, if you're not taking care of these baselines, um, that the ones you referred to, morning sunlight, a little bit of evening sunlight, maybe even um, some panoramic vision, trying to stay off social media, especially in the late hours and middle of the night hours. If you don't do that, you can perform well for a short while, but you go, you go crashing back down really far. It's like, let's stay with the analogy and say, it's like getting marooned on an island and um, then you're stuck. So if you have those basic practices in place, you're in a position to, to do a lot and to do it a lot better than you normally would. Well, and, and let, let me ask you if this analogy is wrong. Like I feel like, you know, the fight 
or flight instinct when there's danger is something that would in, in let's say 30,000 years ago probably would spike for people and and then and then go back down to normal very quickly whereas i feel just even before this pandemic i feel like we're we're constantly in this low simmering fight or flight mode in our brain but we're just sitting still and staring at a computer screen where yeah. all the lions and tigers in the jungle our brain thinks are and Definitely. and of course that probably increased during this time but just in general i want to figure out best practices for for all of these things cuz you know i think what we all realized during this quarantine is that life is short and we've got to kind of enjoy things and part of that is taking care of your your brain you know which is which which sends all these happiness chemicals throughout our our body absolutely well i'm excited for today's conversation because there are things that we all can do to optimize the neurochemicals that allow us to focus better sleep better feel better and some of those are behavioral practices and um uh if possible we can also get into some of the nutritional and supplementation practices that really make a lot of sense. You know, um, my lab doesn't work on those things specifically. We work on the behavioral stuff, but um, through some consulting that I do for um, special operations military, um, a little bit of work with some athletes and some other folks, you know, I've been uh, looking at this experimentally and in the real world for a long time, as well as the things that I do. And there are absolutely things that we can all do to get better and feel better. And these are not... Uh, you know, as far field as um, prescription pharmaceuticals, um, nor are they just accepting that, oh, you know, the basic uh, American diet or whatever is gonna give you everything you need because it's it's not. And I think nowadays people um, fairly assume that um, uh, it we need to do extra things in order to bolster our health and our mental functioning. And everyone's looking for that, not just an edge, but how to raise that baseline high enough that you're really performing at a very high level, which is what those communities I mentioned have to do every day under very right. high stress situations for decades. And how do they, how do they find you? Like, how does the, how do the special operations military, they, do they just like look in the phone book, huh? Is there a Stanford neuroscientist we can call? Uh, or like, how do they, how do they call you and say, we really need your help? Yeah. Um, Let's see. Uh, let me think about what portions of that story I can reveal. Um, Classified. Yeah, not all of it. Um, it's fine. Yeah, it's fine. Uh, anything I talk about is uh, is fine for, uh, you know, but basically um, some people contacted me after some uh, work that we published as well as some, uh, some consulting that I did. Um, they had heard through the grapevine that my lab works on stress and high performance and came by and visited and, and we spoke. And then as we got to know each other better. Some of those folks from those communities, we got to know each other better. They mentioned that there were people in their communities that uh, could benefit from some of the knowledge. And I have some, I also happen to have um, two or three very close friends who uh, were in the SEAL teams. Um, one's retired, two are, um, were active duty for um, nine plus years in the SEAL team. So I got to know people um, that way, as well as, um, Canadian special warfare. I got to know those guys through some um, different circles, but yeah, eventually, you know, they realized that I'm somebody who thinks about the science, but thinks about how the science can be exported to different communities. And then um, they started telling me about some of the things that uh, needed optimization. Obviously they're already functioning at extremely high level and we got to work and, um, and we've been doing, you know, regular work for a couple of years now and the work's going to continue. I hope uh, it's a, it, they're wonderful communities to work with. Yeah. Have they said, oh, this has really changed 
our, our skill levels or our, our, our performance or what have they, what have they, what kind of feedback have you gotten? Uh, well, the feedback's been really strong because, and the work is expanding because obviously there are a number of different groups within that community. The work is expanding. I think the basic feedback was, this is all new. We hadn't heard about this before and we're going to implement it. And I'm actually in in regular contact with um, some of the guys that are active duty, especially up, up in Canada, and they give me feedback. And so we're constantly iterating. You know, the, the advantage of working with communities like that is A, they're all super motivated. They all really want to be there. You know, any job you go to, there are always a few people that don't want to be there. You don't find that in special operations, right? At least I haven't experienced that. They all really want to be there. They're all trying to play at an A++ level. And so, and they like to optimize and uh, tailor things to their own uh, unique needs. So I'll get, um, I'll get texts or contacts. I go up there from time to time or, um, or out there as the case may be. And the, and we're constantly iterating. And, and there's also a lot of exciting developments in the world of um, neural machine interface of building out technologies for measuring biometrics and interfacing with um, our natural biology. So the plan is for the work to expand over the next few years. So yeah, the feedback's been good. It's been a lot of fun. And um, and I consider the work uh, among the most rewarding work I'm involved in these days. And like when you find out something new about, oh, dopamine or serotonin or any of these neurochemicals and you apply it to yourself, do you feel uh, uh, a change or is there some kind of, how do you know it's not some sort of confirmation bias that's kicking in where, oh, this is my idea, so it must work? Yeah, well, um, I think this is the first podcast where I've ever revealed this, but I've been doing, you know, looking at these things since I was a teenager, since I was uh, maybe 15 or so, I started getting interested in um, in this whole space of, of, of human optimization. Um, and that went with fitness and martial arts initially, but then in school, I wanted to be able to study longer, harder, with more intensity and remember more. So I, uh, and I didn't want to resort to recreational drugs because those will give you a quick spike and then you'll drop down way below uh, your ba your initial baseline. Um, and so I've been looking at this for a long time. And so I think my system's pretty sensitive. I'm pretty tuned in. Now, of course, uh, you know, we always have to be careful about uh, confirmation bias. Um, I keep careful notes. I actually get my blood work done pretty regularly and I take careful notes uh, of everything I do. I've never shared those notes, but to me, they make a lot of sense and I track them. So my calendar looks something like a uh, you know, a day planner for a professor combined with a little bit of the, the stuff from my consulting work combined with um, the various things that I'm doing and taking um, and how I'm sleeping. I rate everything on a one to 10 scale every day. I keep track of everything. That's great. Um, and I have for years. So I, I think I'm pretty tuned into it. And I like to think I'd, my, if I have a confirmational bias, it's not running the show anyway. Hopefully. What do you, what do you keep track of? One to 10? So you keep quality of sleep, do you keep track yeah. of like your food or exercise or? Yeah, so I make sure that there are a few things I do every day. Now, some of those like getting panoramic vision and viewing sunlight in the morning, I just do naturally, so I don't log that. But I always, you know, across the week, I make sure that I get five, at least five uh, bouts of movement. And those are that's either gonna be cardiovascular or it's gonna be resistance work. And I try and get two or three of each, okay? So that's gonna sum to about five or six each week. I, I'll mark the intensity of that, I'll mark... Um, and then I, and I keep it brief because if you have too much of a in-depth tracking, then it can get a little bit burdensome. I, I'm careful. I, I, eat, I like to eat and I eat, you know, most foods. I eat carbohydrates. I eat proteins. I eat fats. We can talk later about how to do that at different times of day to optimize focus and optimize sleep. That um, something that works really well. Um, so I'll pay attention to whether or not I've gone off 
my kind of standard thing. Um, I'm not eating on a specific clock, but um, I'll track that a bit. I track my supplementation and I, I keep my supplements very consistent. And then I'm generally trying something new all the time. And, um, uh, you know, some of the thing I'll, I've tried some pretty esoteric stuff. Um, we could talk about, uh, Himalayan shilaji. We could talk about Fidogia agrestis, which is a Nigerian shrub that's involved in the luteinizing hormone pathway. We can talk about all sorts of things, but if I, if I'm doing something, I'm only doing that. So it's a pretty controlled experiment and I'll run it for eight weeks and then I'll step back and, and take a look. And again, this is just the science I'm doing on myself. But I've made recommendations in the last year to, I would say, well over 200 folks that I work with um, about th- especially um, supplements that are safe for virtually everybody to enhance sleep. And the feedback I've gotten is tremendous. And that's not just from special operators or athletes. That's also from moms and dads, um, uh, people my age, people younger, uh, a number, you know, we could talk about why taking melatonin might be a bad idea and why things like Ambien and stuff like that eventually can start causing problems and that there's some, probably some safer routes that people could go to optimize brain function and sleep. Yeah. The one time I ever took melatonin, I mean, sorry, the one time I ever took an Ambien, it's like, I think this is about 11 years ago, took it once. And the very next day I got my first migraine ever. And I've already ever had a migraine since, and I never had a migraine before. So it was definitely the Ambien, and it was just a disturbing experience. Yeah, the, you know, those drugs work for some people, and for other people, they cause a lot of problems. I mean, if we want, we could just dive in with sleep if we want to get to that. But I'll follow well, your well, lead. Well, I'm, I'm actually just curious. Yeah, yeah, let's just run down Let's run down the neurochemicals. Like, okay. Like, okay. dopamine yeah. is always considered that you know, everyone, everyone uses the word dopamine. I don't even know if it's overused or not. So supposedly if someone likes my Facebook post, I get a dopamine spike. If someone, if I, if, if someone takes Adderall, they get a dopamine spike. If they take cocaine, they get a dopamine spike. If they're happy for any, if the girl says yes, when you ask her out, you get a dopamine spike. Yep. Yep. What is this? Is, is dopamine like the super drug, super neurochemical or what is it? Okay. So let's talk about, um, what are called neuromodulators. Neuromodulators include things like dopamine, serotonin, acetylcholine. I'll describe what each of these is and what it does. Um, yeah. But the modulator word is key. And the, that's because what these chemicals do is they enhance the activity of particular brain circuits and brain areas and suppress the activity of others. So indeed, the, neuro, the neuromodulator dopamine, when it's released, it goes and it makes a bunch of brain areas work better and a bunch of areas work less, okay? And the areas that it makes work better are generally the ones that are involved in energy and motivation. And in particular, dopamine causes a perceptual effect of making us focused on things that are outside ourselves, okay? So it enhances our well-being inside but rather than make us quiescent and kind of calm and make us want to stop there, we want more. It puts us in an outward facing mode. So what does that mean? Like, like, what is it? I don't want to get too much into the science, but like, what does motivation mean from a, and, and what does well-being mean from a, a brain point of view? Yeah. So dopamine, when I say it makes us uh, motivated and outward facing, generally dopamine works with another neuromodulator, neurochemical called epinephrine. Epinephrine is in the body and in the brain. It's sometimes called adrenaline, but in the brain it's called epinephrine. And dopamine and epinephrine are buddies. 
And they, when dopamine is released, epinephrine tends to be released. And when epinephrine is released, dopamine may or may not be released. This is very important. Epinephrine is involved in generating a sense of agitation, urgency, and desire and willingness to go, to move. Like, let's get up, let's do this, and we're really excited, okay? Or it can generate a energy and a motivation and an agitation, but doesn't know where to go. And so if dopamine is there, there's generally excitement, that feeling of energy and kind of a, even low-level anxiety, it feels like excitement. And if dopamine is low, it feels like agitation and it doesn't feel good. It feels more like what we would call stress. But those two, but so if there's dopamine, there's generally epinephrine, but if there's epinephrine, there isn't necessarily dopamine. So just to review, we've got dopamine is kind of rewarding, feel good and motivation. Epinephrine, and this is broadly speaking, is energy, a little bit of agitation and is kind of the fuel to get going. So when you, when you say rewarding, is that why like, if I get a like on a Facebook post or if, if uh, it feels like a reward, so dopamine? Dopamine makes you want more dopamine. You know, there's this great book called The Molecule of More. I think I may have referenced it on the last podcast. Maybe I didn't, but let, let's just briefly review dopamine because it's really important. Dopamine is, is released when something good happens, but it's also released in anticipation of things, okay? And it, it makes us excited. It's like the when we reach a milestone and route to a goal, it's released. It's um, You mentioned drugs like cocaine and amphetamine. When people take drugs like cocaine and amphetamine, it makes people very outward facing because the way that dopamine modulates the circuitry involved in our perceptions, it places us more in touch with what's going on outside us than inside us. We're just sort of at this heightened state of good, goodness inside. We feel great and we want, we want to go out into the world and do things. Now, the epinephrine is going to be released in, in concert with that and get it's part of the motivation and part of the, uh, you know, the energy to move forward process. But as I mentioned before, epinephrine can also be released on its own. Pure stress without excitement is just pure epinephrine. Correct me if I'm wrong. Like I just, I try to think about this from, you know, how we evolved. So clearly evolution somehow rewarded some chemicals that were developing in our ancestors and probably made some chemicals that were useless to our continuing life, you know, disappear. So I always think of the way I understand it and correct me if I'm wrong. Like if we see, if we're looking for food in the jungle and we see there's an apple at the top of the tree, we might have dopamine because we haven't gotten the apple yet, but we know if we get the apple, we'll be rewarded in the tribe when we come back. That's right. Dopamine, well, it, anytime you're placing your attention on an outward goal, I don't care if it's financial goal, it's a, it's a personal goal, the, the dopamine system is queued up to look for milestones that tell you that you're on the right path. And you can imagine why this evolved to be the case. If you were an animal with no eyes and you're just navigating by scent, you get onto a scent trail and, oh, that smells good. Okay, great, great. Yes, it's got, to, it's got to increase your forward movement in that direction. And it does that by making you feel good and giving you encouragement to go down that path. Then let's say that the scent goes, the scent disappears, okay? 
Now you're going to look around. You're going to start looking for it again. You're going to start looking for it again, and then you're on to it again. And now eventually you get to the food or you get to the mate or you get to whatever, to water, you get to whatever it is that you were seeking, and then there's a dopamine uh, reward. And there's something very important and called the dopamine reward prediction error. It says that the dopamine response that you get at the end equals the reward that occurred, the amount of dopamine for that reward, the big end zone kind of finish line dopamine minus the reward predicted. If I'm anticipating stuff like crazy, like, oh, this is the path, this is the path, this is the path. And then all of a sudden they say, oh, you know what? We're gonna be indoors for quarantine for the next 18 months. There's a massive disappointment. Dopamine gets crashed down to the floor. There's a circuit in the brain that involves a structure called the habenula. It suppresses dopamine and it disappoints us. It tells us the path that we took was not the right one. And so the mother nature installed these paths for, for rewarding the right paths and for punishing the wrong ones. So, so it seems like, uh, and, uh, what if I diversify my possible number of rewards? So like I could say, either I succeed in, you know, I don't know, having a best-selling book or I spend more time with kids on lockdown. Okay. <laughs> like if you kind of diversify the rewards in your brain. Yeah. So, so let's let's talk about this because it's very important and it brings up another neuromodulator. So just to quickly recap, dopamine is reward, anticipation, and motivation. It's involved in all of those. It's secreted at different amounts depending on where you are in that journey and where you've been on that journey. But it's it's all those things and it's really about outward facing the things that you don't immediately have and it puts you in motion and it works with this other neuromodulator, norepinephrine, that to get you going and to keep you moving. It's like a rocket thruster. Now, there's another reward chemical and system in the brain, and that relates to serotonin. So we have multiple reward systems. The serotonin system is engaged when we feel rewards for what we have in our immediate environment or we already have in our possession. So when I sit down with my bulldog at the end of the day and give him a good scratch, I think about how much I love him, or even if I don't, that's likely to promote the release of serotonin. If you hug your kids, if you um, have a, a call with a, with a family member and you're feeling really good inside, these have been called, not by me, but by others, the here and now rewards, as opposed to dopamine, which is really about the rewards that are out in the world. So the serotonin system can be accessed anytime, but it tends to promote quiescence and calm. It doesn't engage that norepinephrine system. It's more about that warm, soothing, I'm good with everything I have. And you can see why nature would have installed both reward mechanisms. One that gets us out of the cave and pursuing things, taking risks and evolving ourselves and our culture, and a reward system that makes us content with what we have, at least for short periods of time, so that we don't overlook the bonds that we've created because those bonds are very important for the safety and the reassurance that we need in order to feel like we can go out and seek rewards outside that safety. So, so let me ask about the relationship between the, the two. So let's say it's 30,000 years ago, I'm hunting for food. I see the apple at the top of the tree. So I anticipate, oh, if I climb up the tree, everyone's gonna love me back at the tribe because I'm gonna get this apple and bring it home. That's dopamine. And then once I get the apple and climb down from the tree, now do I feel serotonin? Once you get, uh, in keeping with your analogy, once you get back to the, the group and you have the, let's hope it's a bushel of apples and they, they're loving on you you're, and you're, you're, the, you're the hero, you're the king and, they, and you feel the, the bond of your tribe, that's serotonin. 
And I just want to mention that there are some hormones that support this, that give these two systems buoyancy. And you've heard, you probably heard of one of them before. One of the hormones that gives the serotonin system buoyancy is a hormone called oxytocin. It's actually, oxytocin is actually a, a peptide hormone. It sort of acts as a neurotransmitter in the brain that's actually involved in milk letdown in lactating women, but men make it also, and women make it also even when they're not lactating. And it provides... Um, support to the serotonin system in general, and it really enhances pair bonding and bonding between parents and child and child and parents. It's actually secreted most in response to physical contact of skin. We have receptors that trigger these circuits. And so you can imagine why this was important. Babies that just kind of got left on the side while people, while the whole tribe went to go get apples or people weren't interested in nurturing that baby too much, didn't do too well. But that the whole tribe probably didn't do too well. So they're the oxytocin and serotonin system work together to support this here and now feelings of warmth and well-being. These are rewards and quiescence. They tend to promote stillness. And then the dopamine system is involved in the get out there and pursue. It's really about pursuit and getting more of things that we don't already have. And so when I hear stories of very successful entrepreneurs that do have incredible you know, financial success, and then I hear about their personal lives crashing or they're off doing transcendental meditation retreat, retreat number 35, um, trying to find themselves or doing outrageous amounts of psychedelics to try and be happy because they're miserable. And everyone says, wait, how can you be so miserable because you have all these resources? Well, they kind of, in my view, they overplayed the dopamine system and they underplayed the, the system of serotonin and oxytocin. And when I see someone that I consider a true high performer, that's somebody that really knows how to toggle back and forth between both. I'll mention one example just to, to maybe hammer it home. Just recently, it's quite sad actually, but he was um, pretty uh, old at this point. Don Kennedy, who was the former president of Stanford, I actually knew him as a family friend, known him many years. This was a guy who was president of Stanford, commissioner of the FDA. He was president of the AAAS science organization. He was a phenomenal guy, but he also was a great dad, a great father to his kids. He ran every morning. He was just a nice guy. And when I was a kid, I, I kind of studied Don because I was like, how does he do all this? And he said, I'll never forget this. When I, I think I was maybe 14 or 15, he said, you got to work hard. And at the end of the day, you have to look at everything you have and you have to really enjoy it. And that's just the dopamine system and the serotonin system in a nutshell. That's interesting. So, so a couple of things. One is, I didn't know that the serotonin and oxytocin were bundled together. I thought they were always two separate yeah. but equal neurochemicals that had different purposes. So serotonin rewards you if you make the accomplishment that triggered the anticipation for, for the dopamine. And then oxytocin was when you finally delivered that to the tribe so you know that you're going to be, so that you actually do officially move up your status in the tribe and you're rewarded by oxytocin. That's right. These bonds are so crucial to the evolution of our species, right? Because we can't just all be out there seeking and seeking. You know, drugs of abuse um, uh, form a really nice frame for this. If you think about people who take cocaine and amphetamine, it's all about getting more of something. They're very outward facing. In general, they can be kind of abrasive. They're not warm and fuzzy, at least not when they're taking. Um, people who take drugs that enhance the serotonin system like marijuana and cannabis, and I'm not here to judge, I'm not a cop, I'm a scientist, but those drugs tend to pe make people very happy with what they've got. They might get hungry, but they don't generally make people get up off the couch and go um, pursue things. And so these systems, when they're really ramped up by those you know, drugs of abuse, you really get to see their, um, their 
their extreme state. But in general, these are chemicals that support healthy living, provided that we toggle back and forth between the two of them. And this is why I think gratitude practices are terrific because gratitude practices, just appreciating something that you have really enhances serotonin. Um, and to some degree to dopamine as well, which makes you more excited about pursuing things again. But I should mention, um, you know, they're antidepressants called SSRIs, the selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. Their net effect is to increase serotonin in the system. And they can work very well for some people to relieve depression, but the side effects associated with SSRIs tend to be reduced appetite, reduced libido, reduce drives because they trick the brain into thinking you have everything you need. Whereas um, there are antidepressants such as uh, Welbutrin, I forget the chemical name, I can never pronounce it, I think it's Bupropionone, which is more in the dopamine norepinephrine system. And that antidepressant was developed for people that didn't do well on SSRIs. And that drug tends to make people feel better, but it can increase anxiety because it brings epinephrine along with it. And it tends to make people feel kind of agitated. So drugs of abuse, um, antidepressants, and these different natural behaviors, they, they give us a window into these two different reward systems that we really should be thinking about all the time across our day, across our week. You can't just be hard driving and in pursuit, and you can't just sit around and, and navel gaze and appreciate the fact that you're alive. You need to toggle back and forth between uh, different activities that promote uh, each and both of these. That's interesting. So what about uh, something like these benzo, whatever, the like Xanax or Klonopin? Okay. Okay, so then there's a, there's a reward system called the opioid system. And this isn't the opioid crisis. That's a different conversation. This is endogenous, meaning released by your own neurons, the endogenous opioid system. The endogenous opioid system is very interesting because it's generally associated with long duration effort. So people who run very long distances, they get that runner's high. They might get peaks of kind of euphoria during that high. I, I try and do one long run a week. That's the only run I do actually. Um, but during that run, I rarely have these sen a sense of euphoria, but it's more of a low level sense of wellness. It's a little bit more like the serotonin system, but those endogenous opioids are generally secreted in long duration effort. They actually have a analgesic or pain killing ability. And this, and if you, what they do is they make us feel less. We don't feel the pain of the effort, uh, maybe until later. Now, the opioid crisis has been sparked by the fact that this new class of drugs that, um, like OxyContin and others that stimulate release of, of endogenous opioids. Because remember, the drug isn't an opioid. You take the drug and it makes you release excessive amounts of this opioid from your own neurons. You're, you're using your own supply of opioids. But when those drugs... Um, have us release opioid into our system, they act as potent painkillers because they're so potent for the receptors and they tend to overwhelm the reward system. So I, my definition of addiction is a progressive narrowing of the things that bring you pleasure. You know, initially, um, you know, you take a substance perhaps, whether or not it's recreational or it's prescribed, or even if you do something, you know, you do some an activity in life like video games and it, get, and they, it brings you pleasure. Now we have to put a definition on what we mean by addiction. The baseline of your life, meaning the stability of your relationships, the stability of your profession, et cetera, can be a flat, it can be downward or it can be upward. I can get addicted to anything according to my definition, progressive narrowing of the things that bring you pleasure. But I have to drink a lot of water before the baseline of my life starts to go down sharply. I don't have to do much heroin before the baseline of my life starts to go down sharply. So when we think about these systems, what we really wanna do is we wanna in, 
enhance the release of these neurochemicals through ideally through behaviors without having to ingest anything. But everything we do, eating food, sex, uh, getting warmth when we're cold, getting into an air-conditioned room when we're hot, they're all gonna tap into these chemical systems just like they did 10,000 years ago. The question is the extent to which the behaviors that we're engaging in, the things that we're ingesting, whether or not that those keep the baseline of our life flat, they lower it, or in many cases, they can enhance it. So we've got dopamine, serotonin, which goes with oxytocin. We've got the opioid system for long duration effort and pain killing. And then there's, a, there's, there's another one, which is the GABA system. And the GABA system is the one that shuts off our forebrain, turns off our thinking. Um, in the kind of wellness culture, sounds a little woo, but in the wellness culture, culture, sometimes people talk about getting into wordlessness. Sometimes people do this through dance, they do it through movement. Is they this do like it, flow? This is, could be like flow. It could, and this is, but on a more basic um, kind of everyday level, this is what happens when you're falling asleep at night. You gotta turn off your forebrain. And the reason people have a couple drinks to do that, which you know may or may not be a healthy practice depending on what you believe and who you are, the reason people have a couple drinks is because they want to shut off their forebrain because it increases gap, the release of this inhibitory neurotransmitter called GABA. And, that, and so the forebrain will shut down. This becomes important later when we talk about tools for enhancing sleep because basically to get to sleep and stay asleep, you need to shut down your forebrain. You have to move away from thinking and doing and start just kind of being. But that's very hard to talk yourself into. So GABA would be the other one that I'd throw into the mix. And then if we really want to spin off into neuromodulation, um, we could also talk about the endogenous cannabinoid system. Um, people hear cannabinoid and they think, oh, well, we make cannabinoids naturally, therefore uh, marijuana and stimulating the release of cannabinoids is probably a natural behavior. Um, that's not true. Sorry, folks. Um, again, I'm not a police officer. I don't care what people do um, for their own personal behavior. You can do what you want. But the fact of the matter is endogenous cannabinoids, the ones that we make inside us are a little bit more like those opioids. They were designed to provide a mild uh, relaxation and painkilling response, but they're involved in the formation of memories. They actually have a biological function that's separate from what people normally think of as uh, cannabis. So um, remember, just because your body makes something naturally doesn't mean that you want to radically increase the levels of that thing at any one moment. And in fact, when you do that, you run into trouble. People often will ask me, you know, what are my thoughts on cannabis? I'm not a pot smoker. So what I always say is, um, look, I'm not here to judge, but I doubt it's going to make you smarter. Hmm. And in kids, I am very concerned about the lack of motivation and the, it basically shuts down the forebrain a bit. It slows down your, your mental processing. And people will say, well, you haven't tried this strain or that strain. And I'll say, yeah, you're right, I haven't. And I'm not, I'm not saying everyone has my job um, and needs to do my job, but if you wanna be sharp, you wanna be not just able to pursue things, but you wanna be able to toggle between these neurochemical systems, I'd recommend that people approach these things with, um, at least with the information in hand and, and some caution. So does marijuana make you, smart people dumb? No, but does it make people who are amotivated and um, more amotivated? Yes. And so, so endogenous cannabinoids, are you saying it helps you remember things? Because that would be like the opposite of, let's say, cannabis. It's involved in memory formation and then drum roll here, it's no surprise, it's also involved in forgetting. We have active processes in the brain that are designed to discard certain memories and events. And you want those memories and events marked in a very specific way. 
And there's a reason why marijuana causes um, forgetfulness. Uh, it has to do with a suppression of the forgetting um, circuitry. It has to do with um, what sort of lowered glucose metabolism in certain brain areas. I mean, it's lowering the metabolism of the brain. And again, for your listeners that that like to indulge, I'm not here to judge. I just we should just be honest about the biology. So, so okay. So I'm still trying to understand a little bit. So uh, endogenous cannabinoids um, help you remember, but also make you forget. Like, what does it? What's it do? So under conditions of learning and memory, certain brain events get tagged for strengthening so that you remember them in a future time. And other memory events that are associated with that get tagged for forgetting. So at your wedding, you you know, certain things are being tagged for memory. And there were plenty of things that you experienced that were tagged for forgetting. And the cannabinoid system works in, in a very complicated way actually to tag certain things for memory and certain things for forgetting. Remember that all these chemicals are just the chemicals, but they act on different receptors and the receptors determine what the function of a molecule will be. So the, I'm talking in very general terms today. I realize that, um, but okay. the, you know, the, the general contour of these things is the way I described, but the receptor pathways that each of these neurochemicals tickles will create forgetting or will create um, you know, enhancement of certain memories. And right now there really isn't a, uh, a fundamental understanding of the cannabinoid system at the level that would allow me or anyone to say, okay, taking cannabinoid X is good for promoting this type of memory, but it won't impact uh, forgetting. I don't think we're, we're there yet. And the CBD craze is very interesting. This isn't something I've tracked really carefully, but you know the, com the commissioner, or maybe it's former commissioner, the FDA was starting to really look at this carefully because the CBD thing kind of, you know, it snuck out like wildfire. It's not regulated, and it, the one thing we know for sure is that in a pretty broad and careful evaluation of all the CBD products that were out there, most of them are way off from the doses that are listed on the label, way off. In, and that could be higher or lower. So we know that. And CBD likely has effects on some of these pathways as well, but we, we don't really know what those are yet. There just hasn't been a lot of science done. So just to catch up and then I want to understand how to activate each thing and when I should activate each thing and so on. So dopamine is, it gives us energy, motivation. Um, it excites us to anticipate good things. There must be some uh, uh, excitement. Like why is it triggered? Why is dopamine triggered or excitement triggered when, you know, and just in this cliche example, I get a, a like on a Facebook post or I win a game of checkers or whatever. Uh, so here's the interesting thing about dopamine. Dopamine doesn't care about the deeper meaning. It's, it's not like if you get a like that your brain is doing some really fast subconscious processing and says, okay, a like equals this equals this means my life is secure and I feel good. It doesn't do that. Dopamine works on much shorter time scales. Uh, it really, dopamine tends to get engaged in whatever you're focused on. And it, it tends to increase focus itself. So it's kind of a, um, a positive amplification. Think about it, I don't, I don't play ping pong, but occasionally I'll go to a party and people will be playing a game like ping pong or horseshoes or something. And you see these competitive people, they're like, yeah, yeah. And they get super into it as if 
it meant something, right? And that's great. You know, it's a game, it's fun, and you're getting dopamine release, and there's some social bonding too. But the point is that as you narrow your focus on a goal, the dopamine system is primed for you to go for more wins and to do better, regardless of whether or not that's embedded in some larger life goal. So the dopamine system and the likes you get on Instagram are also the reason why you can wake up, let's say at seven in the morning, you look at your phone, you know you shouldn't, you should probably go do something else, but you start looking on Instagram and at 7.30, you're, you know, a half hour later, you're like, I'm still on here. What am I doing on here? And then you go look at, you go make a cup of coffee, you come back and now you're engaged in a conversation there. And then in the afternoon, you, you might or you might not stop to think like, I was pursuing something just to pursue it. And that's why um, uh, this book, The Molecule of More that I didn't write, but I wish I had, it's a beautiful book. Um, really uh, you know, nails home this idea that dopamine wants more dopamine. It tricks you into thinking that you're, you want more dopamine of whatever it is that you're focused on. And that's why in, things like intention and really getting clear on what you're, what you're going after and clearing the decks of other things in your mind, it's really important before you go down that path of dopamine. So you know, that great marketing, great social media tools, um, uh, people who are very good at dating and relationship, um, either consciously or subconsciously know how to tap into these pathways. They really know so, how, to, how to lay out the breadcrumbs so that you just want more breadcrumbs. So, so it seems like any addiction, whether it's to an activity or a drug or whatever, seems to be related to, to too much focus on dopamine because you're getting, you, you, keep, you keep getting pleasure and you keep getting this feeling of more and more that's to continue right. the pleasure. Yeah, but let's but let's not forget that dopamine has this amazing power that A, drove huge aspects of human evolution. It, it allows us to lean into risk, right? To fight large animals, to venture out long distances when we have enough resources. Um, think about when two teams play in the Super Bowl. And I have to imagine that they are both going at max effort the entire time. And at the end, one team wins. Now, one team is depleted and exhausted because they've both been churning out norepinephrine like crazy. Both of them hopefully have had some wins where they've had a touchdown or they've gained some yards, made a field goal or two. But all of a sudden, the team that wins, they're not exhausted. They're jumping up and down. They have energy for days and their energy just went through the roof in a millisecond, in a millisecond. And that tells you it can't be hormonal. Hormones act on the timescale of hours to days to weeks it's dopamine. That's dopamine. So dopamine has the capacity to take us from down in the dumps or in max effort with thinking that there's no way we can continue and in a heartbeat, reshape our whole perception of everything and restore our energy levels. Can't be glucose, insulin, you know, you can go eat anything. Can't be blood sugar. That's not what it is. And dopamine has that power. The other things that release dopamine, you may have experienced this, is humor. If you're working with people or you're just having the worst day or the worst week or the worst month and somebody cracks a joke, all of a sudden it's like you've been restored in a second. Mm. That's the dopamine system. So it has a dark side, right? It can be, you know, endless pursuit of pursuit without a goal in mind or endless pursuit. And then you reach the big goal and then you haven't tapped into the serotonin system. And so you're left without relationships and other ways to gain rewards. But it also has this incredible property of rejuvenation that can allow us to not only endure, but to renew and regenerate our ability to lean into hard effort again. It's a really miraculous thing that we all have installed in us. Right, and so, and then, and then serotonin 
is, like you said, it's this here and now neurochemical. It makes us a little bit more satisfied with what we have. Uh, and it's related to oxytocin. So we, we treasure our relationships more, touching more, and, and maybe our position in the tribe feels a little bit more secure. So that kind of is the serotonin oxytocin, you know, back and forth that's kicking in. Yeah, serotonin forces us to slow down and hopefully to appreciate what we have. And, you know, if, if someone ever, has ever been trying to talk to you and wants to have a real conversation, you've got some place to be and you've got that kind of, you know, thing in the back of your mind where you're thinking, I got to go there and I got to go there. You're in a kind of dopamine, norepinephrine mode, and they're, they're trying to experience a kind of serotonergic bond. They really want to feel heard. They want eye contact. They want to feel understood. Those are two different neurochemical systems that in that moment, they're kind of incompatible. Um, and so it's up to one person or the other to decide if they're going to shift the other way. But uh, I feel like a lot of misunderstanding in life and a lot of um, failures of, of misunderstanding communication have to do with when one person is in a kind of quiescent kind of um, paused mode and they want to really experience something right there and then. And the other person is in a mode of more, more, more anticipation. Okay. Got to lean into the next thing. So is it like if you're having an argument with your spouse or a girlfriend or whatever, and, and you're, you have, you, you're late for a meeting, you're rushing out the door, he or she wants to talk and have a, a, a big conversation. Can you say, Listen, your dopamine is obviously peaking. My serotonin is the opposite. But I have a feeling yeah, later my serotonin. serotonin. Yeah, yeah, your serotonin is peaking. My do dopamine is off the charts. Later this evening, my serotonin will be back to normal, and we can have this conversation. Then would that be like a legitimate thing to say? Sure. And I, I will never um, promote drugs of abuse because that's not my role. But I, I think that people need um, to think about the behavioral practices whether or not it's meditation, you know, calming themselves, self-soothing, breathing, whatever it is that they need to do to bring them to a place where they can have those conversations in the same uh, neurochemical regime. Otherwise, it's just not gonna work. Now, it's also true if you have a team and you're trying to motivate your team and someone's not motivated, you're really you're you need to get them outward facing. If someone's down in the dumps, you know, low, depression can be low serotonin and low dopamine, oftentimes it is. People need to feel that there's something worth working for. That's that outward facing thing. Um, they need to feel like there are rewards to be had when in pursuit and there are rewards to be had when in pause. And it's no wonder that the, the drugs that promote one system or the other tend to succeed but also fail because so far there, ha there hasn't been a uh, wonder drug that can tap into these uh, systems simultaneously, uh, at least not without side effects. So, so there's the dopamine, uh, norepinephrine, uh, system and that's, and then there's the serotonin oxytocin system. Then there's these endogenous opioids, which are like endorphins. So mm -hmm. maybe you're, you're, you're running and you need that extra oomph and these endorphins kick in. Yeah. They're painkillers. Yeah. Right. And, and then there's the GABA system, which kind of relaxes us, shuts mm -hmm. off our thinking a little bit. Yeah. And then there's endogenous cannabinoids, which give us a slight feeling of well-being. I'm, I'm not yet sure mm -hmm. about what they do. They can, but the endogenous cannabinoids are involved in memory formation and forgetting. Okay. And so now, all right, so, so I'm starting off the day. I want dopamine to kick in. I want focus, happiness, excitement for, for my goals. And I, wanna, I want to be super smart. Mm -hmm. Okay. So let's take 
that example and let's talk about some behavioral things that give the dopamine system buoyancy. And then we can talk about nutritional and supplementation things that really push it a little bit harder. So there are a couple things that we need if we want to be energetic and in focus. And I'm going to add another neurochemical on focus as we go along, just a heads up. Um, so if we want to have energy, we need that norepinephrine system working well. It works alongside a, a neurochemical called cortisol. And cortisol is always talked about as bad, this stress hormone. But you want cortisol high during the morning. You want it to peak in the morning and get you going. It's what wakes you up in the morning out of sleep, actually. And to do that, you, that's why I'm a big proponent of this, getting sunlight in your eyes first thing in the morning. And if it's in your practice or, or you're inclined to do it, trying to get some movement first thing in the morning. You don't have to do your full bout of exercise. If you do, can do it in the morning, great. But you want to try and get some movement, maybe at least 10, 15 minutes. It could be a walk, could be a run, could be jump rope, could be jumping jacks, could be anything really, just movement. That's gonna get the norepinephrine system primed because you have the adrenal glands which sit above your kidneys and they kick out norepinephrine and cortisol and get your system awake. Now, the dopamine system is really about picking a goal and a target. So this is why it's so crucial to identify what you're gonna try and accomplish in say the before noon or in the first hour of your day or the first two hours of your day, really setting a goal. And even just setting that goal, you should just mentally reward yourself that you're on the right path for setting that goal. And to the extent that other things start to leap to mind, you should really try and push those aside and stay focused on that goal. The reason is if you can stay focused on that and you're gonna get the dopamine reward as you move forward, it's gonna feel, might feel a little tough depending on how well you slept or how poorly you slept. But if you reach that goal, you're gonna feel a dopamine release. It's gonna get you better at focusing on singular goals. Now, there's another way to get your dopamine in the morning that's gonna take you off track. And I'm guilty of doing this. The other way to do it is to wake up you feel kind of groggy. You take cocaine. You start looking at social, you take, well, well, okay. So, okay, we could talk about that. I've, I've not done that, but we could talk about that, what that would do. If you take cocaine first thing in the morning, you would be hyper-focused and hyper-alert. And the problem is if there's too much norepinephrine, which is also triggered by cocaine, your energy can be scattershot. It can be your attention, excuse me, can be scattershot. You can be pursuing anything and everything from moment to moment. You ever look at somebody who's really, really high, they're like, everything's a stimulus. They're like a puppy. They're like, everything's a, an object to pick up and play with. And then they're on to the next thing. You know, they've got like, you know, a little saliva in the corner of their mouth because they're like frothing at something, but it's meaningless. And then they come down and they realize it was really meaningless. So assuming that's not, um, we don't want people doing that. Uh, we definitely right, don't right. want people doing that. So you are moving toward your goal and you can also get your dopamine from picking up your phone and starting to you know, flip through Instagram. You'll get your dopamine one way or another, but you're not really on a specific path unless your job is to go provide likes for someone that owns an Instagram account. So you wanna pick a targeted goal and you wanna move toward that goal. And ideally you do it in the early part of the day because it really does prime this dopamine system to be able to do that more regularly. What's the relationship between the sunlight in the morning and the exercise in the morning and being able to, uh, uh, you know, does the level of dopamine change if you do that when you start picking a target, a goal and so on? Yeah, so here's here's the thing that's really key is forward movement, whether or not it's toward a cerebral or intellectual goal or it's physical exercise, for, literally forward movement triggers release of dopamine. This uh, My lab published a paper in 2018 in the journal Nature showing that forward movement, especially when there's a low level of stress in the system, when you're a little stressed, promotes the release of dopamine. 
Okay. Forward movement also quiets the activity of the amygdala, this threat detection center in the brain. Forward movement toward a specific goal and you're always in forward movement of some kind. The question is, are you in forward movement toward a focused, valuable goal or not? So that's why, you know, you hear about these practices of setting out the plan the night before, or, um, you know, some people wake up and they're very focused. Other people like me, I wake up and my mind is a little still discombobulated from sleep because in sleep, our mind is discombobulated. We're not able to form plans. And it takes me a while to transition out of sleep. So I use 10 to 15 minutes of exercise as a way of, of, amplifying that epinephrine and dopamine system. So I'm actually just moving towards something. This morning, I didn't have much time. I literally took a, a 10 minute jog. It's not my round of exercise, but it has me moving forward and it puts me on a path. So there are a couple other things. Um, again, not a nutritionist. Um, I don't study supplementation, but there are some things that I do that I think are very valuable and that people in various high-performing communities do. One is a lot of people nowadays are, in, are into intermittent fasting. Fasting itself will stimulate the release of norepinephrine. And in, interestingly, it will also slightly increase the amount of dopamine because it puts you in kind of anticipation of a goal. Now, normally that goal is food if you're very, very hungry. But there's this ancient mechanism whereby when our blood glucose is low, we tend to have, even though we might be a little um, hungry and a little bit agitated, it tends to focus us on things outside ourselves. It means we need something outside ourselves. So we're less content to just sit on the couch or less content to just be quiescent as uh, contrast that with after you've eaten a big meal, right? You're, you're probably more comfortable to just sit down and relax. And that's not an accident. So if you're going to practice intermittent fasting, I don't really do that in a strict way. Um, you could do that in the uh, in the morning. Sometimes people find that that helps them improve their their focus because fasting can improve focus. Now these are short term fasts. I'm not talking about day long fasts. I'm talking about just waiting, to, pushing your first meal out. Now in terms of supplementation, okay, I don't own a supplement company, so but I want I want to be clear. But there are some supplements that um, can enhance dopamine, and the one that's most powerful in this regard is one that I don't recommend. Okay, um, it's called Mucuna purines. It's actually, uh, it comes from a bean and it's actually pharmaceutically identical to L-DOPA, which is the immediate precursor to dopamine. It is dopamine. Now, the reason I don't recommend it is I don't recommend that anyone take anything that's the chemical itself because you're gonna throw these reward systems out of whack. You're gonna feel great and then you're gonna crash just like you would if you took a, a drug of abuse like cocaine. But if you take things that are further up the synthetic, the, the pathway, the synthesis pathway to dopamine, you start arriving at what are called amino acids. These are things that are extracted from foods. So you make dopamine from the amino acid L-tyrosine. Now L-tyrosine tends to be enriched in certain foods and those foods include red meat and nuts. Those foods, if you eat them, make you secrete a little bit more L-tyrosine and will promote the secretion of dopamine. Now, it's low level. And of course, if you ingest too much of anything, if you ingest two ribeye steaks, right, your, your, your gut is gonna be so filled with blood that you're gonna be tired no matter what. You're not gonna feel motivated. But red meat, and in particular, and nuts, various kinds of nuts, increased tyrosine levels, which increased dopamine levels. You can also take, you can purchase and take L-tyrosine. You can buy it in pill form. Now, anyone who's gonna take supplements, I highly recommend you go to the website, which I have no affiliation with, but it's brilliant and I love it, called examine.com. 
This is a not uh, not for profit site where you can put in any supplement and it will link you to the studies on this as well as what they call the human effect matrix where it will show you arrows for upwards if let's say um improves focus it'll show three arrows or or it'll let's say it decreases focus it'll just say focus with some downward arrows and it will link to the pubmed studies and it will tell you right there if this was done in postmenopausal women or if this was done in kids or if this was done in healthy adults it gives you all that information and it has some very powerful um, data sets there that are very easy to access. So if you're interested in any supplements that you're taking or that you're thinking about taking, go to examine.com. L-tyrosine, if you take it, you'll notice within about 30 minutes to an hour that you're feeling that you feel happier. You said you wanted a happy bill. You feel um, more focused. You feel more energetic. It is a, an antidepressant. You're synthesizing more dopamine. And if you you know, stack that with a cup of coffee if that's normally in your practice. Don't do this if you have a heart condition. Of course, talk to your doctor about all of this but before you do it, but you will feel energized and focused and positively in anticipation of things. Yeah, so it, so there are real neurochemical approaches to this. I, obviously, I think people should do it with behaviors, but do I occasionally take L-tyrosine? Absolutely. Do I occasionally drink coffee? Almost every day. So, you know, coffee is just another drug in the kit. We've talked about half the neurochemicals. Stay tuned for part two tomorrow, which is the other half.